everybody. This is William Del Pilar, and this is Fired Up. We have a very interesting episode. As many of you are aware, there was a big ruling by the United States Supreme Court. And while it did not directly deal with Latinos, we are going to take a Latino take on it because we are now seen as a minority, as you can see as with my dark skin here, you know. But, uh, but in all seriousness, uh, I have a guest with me today. His name is Gerion Frankel. Gerion Frankel. He's a PhD student in PK-12 Education Administration at Texas A&M University. His work primarily focuses on education policy, American history, political philosophy, and where those subjects intersect. His writings have been published in local, state, national, and academic publications, including the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, and the American Institute for Economic Research. He was previously an education reporter for Chalkboard Review. I view Gerion as a young Turk, to steal their term, an up-and-comer. He is tomorrow's future, or he, he is today's future, and I mean that seriously. And uh, Gary, as I'll call you, welcome aboard, and it's great to have you. Uh, nice as you can, as you can tell, I threw on the Latino accent there. We're kind of light skinned here, you know. Stereotypically, <laughs> they look at us as short and brown, and I tell people, hey, some of us aren't short and brown. We're just short, you know. <laughs> so uh, 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 Gary on told me to call him Gary. So so we have a Latino named Gary Frankel. <laughs> I, I know. It, I promise, it's my mother's side. <laughs> oh, I, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. You know, and, and one reason I kid is because we are so diverse. You know, people, yeah. again, we have a stereotype in this country that we are all, all short and brown. But people forget Spain and France to a little bit of a degree, but Spain pretty much conquered the world at one time. And I always joke because uh, my full name is Del Pilar Soto. I always joke that that Soto guy got around because that surname <laughs> is everywhere. And uh, I, I, I get mistaken for for Hispanic, from Hispania, from Spain. Uh, uh, Filipinos ask me, hey, are, are you related? Are you Filipino? Because uh, there's a famous general with the Del Pilar surname. So, but enough about me, though. Uh, that said, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and what got you onto your educational path. Yeah, um, I sort of fell into education policy completely by accident. Um, you know, uh, for most of my life, I was one of those nerds who thought that they wanted to be president. Um, very glad I got off of that train. <laughs> Don't get me started on that. Um, but when I was 20, I interned with the Texas Public Policy Foundation, and I was a strong writer, so they threw me on with the education policy team. And uh, they got me completely hooked, and it's what I've been doing ever since. And I love it. I'm very passionate about it. Uh, everybody is a stakeholder in education, and I think that message gets overshadowed sometimes. And, you know, it's my job to figure out what exactly is going on in our schools and how that applies to everything else. And and I don't I don't want to say lucky. Uh, uh, your parents were smart. My parents uh, were workaholics. Their whole lives was about uh, bringing money to the house because they grew up. I tell Americans, y'all don't know what poor is until you go to to, to a different country. And their whole focus was uh, was was money. You know, my mother was uh, and we're going to get into that uh, uh, was helping to send money back to Panama. So education wasn't a forte for us. So I didn't understand the importance of education until I was a young adult. Uh, you, you know, so 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 God bless your mother for that. You know, so we're going to get into the Supreme Supreme Court decision here and. And Gary wrote an interesting article. The left wants to make Hispanics affirmative action props. And I've been saying that for years. The subhead of the article is Hispanics are not the hapless victims of the Supreme Court's decision that left that the left needs for its narrative. And before we get into the article, please tell us a bit about the actual case and what group it actually affected directly. Because it, 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 even though we were seen as part of that group because we're minorities, it specifically was being fought by a different minority group and their enemy or, or their adversary was actually uh, uh, the black coalition and progressives. So affirmative action first got underway several decades ago and it was meant at least in higher education in our universities as a method of restoring some of the racial imbalances that stemmed from particularly African-Americans and Hispanics being excluded from the main university system for decades, if not 
hundreds of years prior. And, you know, for 10, 20, maybe even 30 years before it really started becoming controversial, it was a somewhat effective policy. But what ended up happening was that affirmative action went from something to elevate people who wouldn't necessarily have had the opportunities to go to a really good school otherwise. And it instead became a meth. It became this weird, almost moral philosophy of we have to cultivate this school's ethnic mix exactly how we have in mind. It's not about giving people opportunities anymore. It's about pushing a different kind of narrative. And that's when you start seeing all these court cases, all these controversies, all these really strange defenses, all this, what I like to call uh, ethnic essentialism, in which everything about a person or a community or a country in many cases uh, can be boiled down to someone ra someone's race. It's a crazy argument, but it's one that became very popular, and it was one that was used to justify affirmative action until recently. That is so true. I was thinking about going back to college. Uh, I was a fantasy sports pioneer. I helped commercialize that industry back in the 90s into the turn of the century. Uh, I was a big name in the industry and, and with some big accomplishments here. I was the NFL Network's first fantasy analyst. Our company was the first fantasy sports company featured uh, on an NFL pregame show. I'm not saying this to pump me up, but saying it to prove a point. So after I sold the company, walked away, I was always a political junkie. Uh, and I feel some of the best people in politics can be lawyers to fight for causes such as this one. And I was investigating going into an Ivy League school because I was thinking, hey, why not? So I talked to my friend. And, you know, you look at me, you don't know I'm Latino. And no, I never brought my race up to anybody. I, I never cared about that. That's not what I was about. And he's saying, well, you know, he's kind of he's trying to bring me down gently because uh, I go, well, do they have anything for Latinos? And he was like, you're Latino? Oh, my he go, Oh, my God, you're in. He goes, with your accomplishments, you're in. He goes, William, on a scale of 0 to 100, the white person has a score of 125. You have to score a 25%. Black Americans literally don't have to score uh, uh, much above a 0% again. And he goes, they want you there. He goes, and that was the first time, because I've read the stories in the past, you know, but then hearing it directly, how, how it would impact me, it depressed me because I was like, oh, my God. This does nothing but continue the poverty circle because I am well-versed in public school education and the lack of it, to be honest. And my whole thought process was not only are minorities being allowed to enter these schools, they're not ready or prepared because their education in public school is not a match for where they need to be at the Ivy League school. So, uh, and I knew statistically most of them drop out and it was depressing because I'm realizing if you drop out of an Ivy League school, you're just not dropping out. You're dropping out with hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt. You know, so so that I chose not to go to law school. Uh, I got a little lazy. I'm like, man, it's two years of intense study, man. I'm old. Yeah, <laughs> I'm kidding a little bit. But the point is that really reopened my eyes and and and, and it was depressing. And this court case fell. It, it was brought on by a student, an Asian student group, because Asians, it, it became well known. The whole country knows about this. were being discriminated. Uh, specifically, the case brought UNC, the University of North Carolina chapter. Hill. I'm a North Carolinian, uh, a great university, great campus, great people, great graduates, and Harvard. And uh, the decision that eventually came out is that it violated, that, that, that the affirmative action rulings violated the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause. And now everybody knows, oh, we have amendments, we have the first, second, and there were, there were, they understand those. But not everybody understands the 14th Amendment. Can you expound on that, please? Absolutely. The 14th Amendment was passed during Reconstruction in the aftermath of the Civil War, and its purpose was to ensure that all of the freed slaves um, in the South, but many were also slowly beginning to migrate north at this point, had access to equal rights and equal protection by the government. Now, what does that mean in practice? It means that, let's say there is a broadly available government program that anybody theoretically can apply to. Well, the 14th Amendment says that the government can't accept one application because somebody is white or rejects somebody else's application because they're Hispanic. That's not equal protection because not everybody of a certain group or an identity or a religious belief 
is being protected in the same way by right. the law. So it prevents, at least constitutionally, and you know, we had a very, very, very long struggle about this, but the letter of the law constitutionally prevents most forms of discrimination. And in this case, we're talking specifically Asian kids. Right. Uh, you know, uh, on a side note, I believe part of this process was they just overperform. They have strong values, strong community, strong family. Uh, them, there's a great book by an Ivy Leaguer uh, 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 called the, I forget, something Tiger, they call her, the Mama Tiger or something like that. And she brought these values up. And, and I truly believe uh, it's not that Asians are smarter than blacks or Latinos. They instill these 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 values the culturally that any other culture can learn from, and they were being discriminated against. Uh, that's how I see it. I don't want to put words in your in, in your mouth, but that's kind of how I saw it. And finally, the student group was like enough, and they took it to court. Uh, now, the court's decision, they say, well, uh, it, what you wrote here, uh, the boo boo birds immediately emerged from the woodwork, which was true, uh, but they said that the ruling was a significant step back in the fight against systemic racism and discrimination. And they said that the court's decision will homogenize universities and harm efforts to achieve social demographic equity in education. What is the left saying? Break that down in layman terms. A lot of big words there, but it is the arguments <laughs> they're making. <laughs> so what the left sees is that they look at universities, especially elite universities, your Ivy League schools, your public Ivies, because really it's only those elite, elite, elite universities at this point that are still applying affirmative action. Um, it's been banned in a lot of states already, and even in the states where it isn't banned, a lot of universities just don't practice it. So we're talking about the Harvards and the Yales and the Princetons of the world here. And what they were worried about is that if they just went by merit, then the entire university would just be filled with white and Asian kids. And that because of that, they feel that they have a obligation, that they have some sort of responsibility to admit as many Hispanic and African-American students as possible, because otherwise they have this idea that unless... With that without affirmative action and without access to these elite cream of the crop universities, that Hispanics and African Americans will never become doctors or lawyers or professors. And that, you know, it's 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 almost like that they're the parent introducing their toddler to the world. It's this exactly. idea that without affirmative action, that Hispanics and African Americans in particular will never have access to any of these elite sorts of professions. And I think as you and I both know, that's not true. Right. And as you alluded to or stated earlier in our conversation, there was a time when that was necessary. I remember as a small child going to the doctor and this sounds and my mom's a simple woman. She's a country uh, uh, kid born and raised in Panama, non-educated. She, she would tug at the shoulder. Make sure you get the white doctor. Make sure you get the white doctor because of the perception. It was only, it was only the white people who were getting these these educations. Now, this is back in the, the, the 70s, the, the early 70s. So but all that has changed. You you know, and uh, 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 speaking of the education, this is where I want to get into your education, because there are a, a lot of minorities who need a greater education. We're going to get to that issue uh, in a bit. But there but there are smart parents who understand the importance of getting the education started early. So tell us a little bit about your educational story and your mother and, and why she really pushed you down this path and how you responded. Well, <laughs> My, my mother was one of the first people in her family to go to college. Um, she was a teacher for many, many years. She taught in public schools at on the U.S. side of the U.S.-Mexico border in Texas, uh, second grade for the most part. And then uh, when she relocated to New York for a while with my dad, she also taught uh, technology and ESL at a Catholic school. Um, and, you know, my mother and my father have always been people who have been very concerned about education. Uh, though I have to say, throughout most of my educational career, it was me who was putting the pressure on myself. Um, I don't know if it's just an attitude I developed over time or if it, 
was genetic in some way because <laughs> because I come from a family of perfectionists that I became a perfectionist, but they never really imposed anything on me. It, you know, the, the values were certainly there and that they instilled those values in me. But in the end, it was really my decision to pursue education with the ferocity that I did because it was something that I thought was important. And I always, I mean, I went through public schools as well, but once I had some choices in the matter, it came down to where I felt most comfortable from an educational perspective because, um, you know, in my bio, I say that I'm starting my PhD at Texas A&M, but I also got my bachelor's and my master's from Texas A&M because it's a place that I feel like aligns with my values. It's a place that I have a lot of affection for. And I, it's just a really, really good school that, you know, a couple controversies here or there aside, I think does things really fairly. And yeah, you know, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was finished. Oh, uh, you know, it, it's it's funny that you say that you don't, you don't know what it was in the sense you're a perfectionist or they never imposed it. I believe that a lot of that is based off the what I was talking about earlier, the culture of the family value. Uh, yeah. Your parents were, were educated. They saw the importance, importance of education. I'm sure they probably said, is your homework done before you could do other things growing up, things of that nature. As silly as it sounds, that didn't exist in my household because as I said earlier, uh, I don't know if it was off camera or earlier in the show, but my parents never, they, my, my dad got a GAD, GED when he was in the military. My dad was a 30 year guy. He made E9 in 14 years, which which was unheard of even in the 50s. He was a, a soldier soldier. My mom worked in a factory when she got to the States, earning money to send back home. Again, money was the issue because they never had any. So it was very important to them to, and my dad was feeding a family of six, you know? Uh, so they never imposed education. I didn't real, I didn't get to your state of mode until after I dropped out of college. And I made the decision to drop out because I, I was paying my own way. And I liked the bong and I liked the joint more than I liked the college books. And I had no shame in saying that. It was a hard lesson learned. Then in the military, when I was getting out, I realized, oh, my God, I'm too small to be digging ditches. You know, I got to get a, a, a degree. And uh, so I started working a degree. So so and my point to you and to everybody else out there is that's the importance of values and culture in the home. That's the importance. We're not going to get into this, but having a mother, a stable household. I don't want to say a mother and father. Uh, uh, that's what I believe. But it, it's more important to say having a stable household. My mother, uh, again, she was born and raised in, in the jungles of Panama. You know, well, not literally the jungles, you know, but they carve out their little towns there. And outside of that little town, it was jungle. Uh, I used to spend summers there. My bathroom was an outhouse. My shower was the river. She always made sure we never forgot who we were and where we came from. And I bring that up because she, even though that's where she came from and we're proud, she busted her tail working in that factory and getting money from my dad, what little he would give her. You know, my dad never said no to anything that she wanted. And she sent that money back and she treated my aunt like, like a mother would. And my aunt got educated. She got her master's. She is now teaching, has been teaching for decades in Panama. She is seen as what is middle class. She has a shower, running toilet, you know, She's living uh, at large compared to what a lot of uneducated individuals. And my point to all this isn't that she needed an affirmative action type deal. This is in Panama where they don't have that. She needed somebody to help her, but to teach her the values and the importance. Because my mother was hard on her saying, this is money that I don't have to give you that I'm giving you. So so it, 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 it's a value system. It's a culture system that we have to teach to our kids, uh, to our neighbors, to our friends to understand, hey, the American dream is there for you, but you have to work hard to get it. Uh, so with that said, and you and I looking at it differently than most uh, want us to look at it, why do they want us to feel we're not getting a fair shake? And by they, I mean the left, the progressives. Literally, I don't want to put you in a party thing, but for me, it's the Democratic Party. Why do they feel uh, we're not getting a fair shake? It stems from a very progressive notion of identity politics, where somebody's values, their culture, their identity, their politics can be put in this neat little box based on their ethnicity. And, you know, this, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to lie, it has served them electorally 
over the years, but it's getting to a point where it's no longer working because within groups, in our, in our case specifically, within groups that are considered Hispanic or Latino, or if you really want to get into what progressives are doing, Latinx. Yeah. <laughs> um, you can't put a Cuban from Miami in the same box as a Tejano from San Antonio, in the same box as somebody from Mexico living in suburban Phoenix, as somebody else from Mexico who's living in urban Los Angeles. They're just going to be very different people with very different cultural backgrounds, very different experiences, and it's going to affect how they see the world. But the problem is, is when you have genuine diversity, is that you can't put people in those neat little boxes anymore. Because diversity to them means, okay, we have five of these boxes and all five of these boxes are going to be included. But that's not how the world works. Because within the Hispanic box, you have thousands of diff different cultures and backgrounds and experiences. And they're all going to view this issue a little differently. And, you know, a lot of these mainstream media articles don't necessarily like to give you the exact statistics when it comes to how Hispanics feel about affirmative action because once you put all of those experiences and ideas together it comes out most of the time that a small majority opposes it that's important right. and it runs against the narrative right uh, uh you know in my way i look at it one of the travesties of, of slavery is that black americans lost their their identity in terms of knowing where in africa they came from so they've always been seen as black Americans, as one unified. I have talked to uh, dozens of Africans, and I ask them about the black Americans, what they think, and they don't associate with them. Uh, I've talked to Haitians who come here, and when I say don't associate, they don't view themselves as a black American. We're Haitians. They have their culture. They have their background. So that's a travesty that was done to, 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 to black America that, that I think needs to be rectified, whether it's free genealogy tests, as silly as it sounds. But there's a lot of black Americans who want to find their culture. And the reason I bring that up is then they looked at the Latinos, and they looked at us at the same, as the same way. They, and to me, they stereotyped us, which is a form of racism. Oh, y'all are just one type of big group, short and brown. You know, and no, I always tell people, no, Latinos are pretty much the American landscape. We run from white to black. The difference between a Latino family and the average American family that's all white, all black or whatnot is, for example, my grandmother was called the N-word when she came to visit. Uh, in the States. My my cousins all have the beautiful brown bronze complexion. You know, my sister and I were like, we're like, we have our, my dad's Puerto Rican side. Uh, so, but we were born and raised in Panama. So man, I remember as a small child, four years old and five years old, being grabbed by the hair, not in a mean way, just like looking at my, why has he got blue eyes? Why is he so light skinned? You know, <laughs> man, they would call my mom China. They would call my mom China because we had, uh, uh, I found it. I've never done the genealogy but I found some photos. I'm like, well, that's an Asian guy there. And somebody said, yeah, he was Asian. Your great-grandfather, he was here working on the uh, 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 Panama Canal because the French brought over a lot of Asians, you know? So we run this diverse gamut, but yet within our own families, you see that diversity. And, and, and you are absolutely right. And I think that's where they fail. That's why they're having problems with Latinos. They just assume we would be the next block of a uh, 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 segment that they could sit there and bring on. And one reason, not that I don't want to bring you into this. I also believe one reason of this is, well, with Planned Parenthood, they pretty much 30, over 30 million black babies uh, have been aborted. That does something to the growth of that. And they need, uh, uh, they need it as terrible as it sounds. They want to replenish the, 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 the sheep that they want us to be. And they may want affirmative action, but they don't want us educated. Uh, because with education comes the ability to critically think. And when we critically think, we start the question. And when you start the question, you demand answers. And when you don't get the answers you want, that's when things can fall apart. So that's my personal opinion. Uh, I don't want to put you in a box, but do you have any thoughts? Am I looking at it wrongly? Or do you sit there and see, well, maybe this is a different or what? How do you see what I just said? I agreed with what a lot of what you said. You started to lose me a little bit towards the end there because I think it's more just a matter of ignorance rather than malice. Because I think that they're trying to put all Hispanics into a box because it's what they're used to. It's what's worked for them. 
and they don't understand enough about Hispanic communities in the United States to know that that simply isn't going to work. And so it's, it's the definition of insanity. It's doing the same thing over and over and again and expecting different results with Hispanics when in reality, that's just not going to happen because that Cuban from Miami, that Tejano from San Antonio, and that Mexican from Los Angeles are just so different from one another. And those distinctions matter. And it's not just that they want to control people or that they don't want Hispanics to get educated. I don't think that's true. It's just that they don't know enough about the communities that they're advocating for. And if anyone tells them that they don't know enough about the communities that they're allegedly advocating for, they get really upset and they get offended because, you know, nobody likes being told that they're wrong or ignorant. But in this case, it's true. You know, I, 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 I get your point. I had your same point when, when I was much younger. But then I look at the public school education. Uh, the data has been there for decades upon decades upon decades. And my belief is simple. If you truly cared, you would attack the problem. Instead, politics have always been in, 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 in the world from day one. Uh, I saw your Young Turks interview. But where that individual was wrong is politics were not involved in the education <laughs> of the kids when we first settled this country. You know, uh, there was, it was done locally. You know, yep. and, and granted, it was mostly white kids, you know, uh, in fact, I'd probably say probably 99 percent white kids, but it was not political. Once the government began taking over the public education is when it became political. So I, I will disagree with you, but not because I think you're wrong. It's because it's probably a combination of both. I think a lot of people want to help. But the politics rears its ugly head and the teachers union step in and they call the shots. And take COVID, for example, it wasn't about educating and getting the kids back into school. It was about negotiating for more money, you know? So, 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 so I, I see your point. And, and my final point on that is being born and raised in Panama as an American citizen, being the protected class, meaning uh, until, until Noriega's final years, Americans were literally untouchable. And they knew that. You don't mess with American, that creates uh, international conflict with the United States of America. But I saw how... Uh, they use food pricing, education, all those controls uh, to keep the people in, in place. I saw two dictators. And the reason uh, I'm more jaded, I guess, is because I'm seeing a lot of parallels in a dictatorship starting to come over here. And I've seen those parallels begin since approximately 2000. And it's not just a Democrat-Republican thing. It's, it, it, it's an elitist. It's a caste system in my eyes. I'm not saying in your eyes uh, in terms of these are the rich, the powerful. You know, they allow certain people to come into their, their, their country club. But at the end of the day, we the data does show blacks and Latinos remain ignorant, remain uneducated. But the data is there as to why and we can change it. And we're choosing not to change it. Thus, that's why I, I have my beliefs, which brings us up to we kind of already discussed it. But what do you view as the bigotry of low expectations. That's, I think, my, that's where I get angry at the bigotry of low expectations. If you can explain that and we'll discuss that. Yeah, I, I got into it a little bit earlier, but I'll do it with more detail now. There is this idea among many progressives, and, you know, I'll, I'll be an optimist here, and I don't think most of them even realize it, that yeah. they're acting extremely paternalistically towards minority groups, especially African-Americans and Hispanics. And what I mean by paternalistic is that this, it's this very, very ugly idea that these minority communities are underdeveloped or ignorant or uncivilized in some way. And of course, they would never use that terminology, but in the end, that's the argument they're making. And that it's the responsibility of their social betters to elevate them up to the level of everybody else. It's a modern, odd, left-wing form of the white man's burden. Yes. And, oh, that's a great way to put it. And it's this strange idea that, you know, without affirmative action, without all of these government interventions, that a Hispanic person who grows up poor can never become a doctor or a lawyer, or another form of professional, or whatever elite industry you want to throw in there. Because to them, without that sort of elevation, then it's just impossible. But, I, I, and I talked about this in the article, I found an absolutely 
fascinating study. And it looked at Hispanic children in states that had gotten rid of affirmative action. Uh, I think it was Texas and California specifically. And they found that a given Hispanic student who would have applied to, let's say, Harvard, Yale, and Princeton when affirmative action was in place was still going to apply to Harvard, Yale, and Princeton once affirmative action was removed. The policy itself did not change their application behavior at all. Now, what does that mean? It means that one, affirmative action didn't really do anything. And two, that people from minority communities know exactly what they're capable of. And they don't need the government telling, coming in and telling them that they need help or that they aren't educated enough to get into Harvard on their own and therefore they need this lifeline. We know exactly what we are capable of. And we don't really need the government to just come in and say, well, here's this way to get a leg up on everyone else because we think you're oppressed or that you were oppressed 100 years ago. Very different circumstances now, and the argument just doesn't work that way anymore. You're absolutely right. And again, my own life experience, going back to my mother, and it, because again, my mother had the broken English. She she was always extremely polite. She had this uh, Asian Indian look. I mean, she screamed stereotype to a lot of whites. And then we're talking the 70s. And yeah. I'd listen to, to, to a lot of, and it wasn't white. It was, I listened to a lot of white women, black women, and Asian women, all cultures who were American, you know, American living here, and they would talk down to her. They would talk slow to her. Now, granted, yeah, it can be a little slow. I get it. You know, she had to understand. But I always, uh, the, the vibe I got, the, how I, I, I digested that, they thought they were better than her, you know? And uh, uh, I remember one summer, we just left the, 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 the army base we were at, and we lived with, with my grandmother uh, uh, when my dad was in Vietnam. And this was at a time in the 60s and 70s where the military, I don't know if they still do, but did all the big balls and things like that. And they just treated her like dirt. And, and I could sense she saw that. But my mother's never given up for her love for humanity. Uh, so she always forgave My mom, God bless her. She's one of She's a fundamentalist, you know. Uh, God bless her. She's always forgiving them. But I saw that. It wasn't that they thought they were stupid. They just they just had this, I'm just naturally superior to you. And they didn't realize it. You know, the, and I like that term, the soft bigotry, low expectations. I was trying to find it here. But there's this great video by an individual named Ami. Uh, 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 and forgive me, he's a Jewish guy. So I, his name's one of those typical, which you don't forget it. I forgot it. Great guy, does a lot of videos. He was doing a video in, he was in, he was in, he was in New York City in a white area. And I'll, I'll email this to you and for the audience. I'll make sure it gets in, in the notes section for this video uh, where he's talking to the, the, the white individuals, adults, the kids. And every one of them, they were talking about black Americans as if, yeah, you know, they need help. They don't understand the Internet. They don't know how to get to it. Uh, what about uh, uh, in terms of that? Then about voter ID, uh, but, you know. They don't, they don't, may not know where the DMV is. They were saying, the, I'm not exaggerating. These are things they said. So then he went into Harlem, you know, and, and, and he's asking, do you, do you think this, what, what do you think of this? What do you think of that? What do you think of this? And one guy said the best. He, he, he was polite. That's some ignorant fools, as we were saying. And another guy was like, he's looking around. Is this candid camera? Is this candid camera? You know, because he thought it was such a joke. And to me, that epitomizes, as you say, the white man's burden. They don't even realize they are being racist towards a group they say they want to help. And to me, that's a superiority complex, whether whether malice or not. It's 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 not working. You know, they don't, we don't need your helping hand. We just need to be taught equally. And by equally, there's what I call tough love uh, in terms of like, you got to be tough on people sometimes to get them to raise their expectations of what they can accomplish. Because when you're told you're a victim or you're given something or you're given favors, it is human nature to get lazy and not work as hard for whatever reason. Again, those are things I have experienced in life. And, and I will send you that video. It is a whopper. It, 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 it's eye-opening. Now, you also sit there and say, uh, and this is pretty much standard, you know, progressives try to deny this, but you mentioned the media is truly of one mind on affirmative action. Let's discuss that. Uh, explain that a little further from your perspective. 
Well, you know, I, I used the term boo birds in the article, and <laughs> from a media perspective, that's exactly what happened. You know, when I make this point about this idea that without affirmative action, there won't be any minority doctors or lawyers, I'm not putting words in people's mouth. That is almost word for word something that Bloomberg said in the aftermath of the affirmative action decision. I'm not exaggerating at all. You can Google it. It's exactly what they said. CNN said something similar. <laughs> MSNBC said something similar. I mean, I'm sure if you look at NPR or CBS or Voice of America or somebody like that, you're going to find the same sorts of arguments. And that's because that the mainstream media has been conditioned to view itself as part of these elite institutions that are responsible for elevating the people who cannot elevate themselves. It's not about giving people the tools or the information that they need in order to secure their own elevation in society. No, 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 no. You're clearly not capable of doing this on their own. Mm -hmm. So I, the esteemed journalist who works for the New York Times, must come in and save the day. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's not really how it works. And if you notice that the major media outlets in states where affirmative action has been gone for 5, 10, 15, I mean, like 20 years in the case of Texas, they didn't react to it the same way. Because yeah. the institutions and the changes within those states have created a different climate. Because exactly. you wouldn't be able to notice that Texas doesn't have affirmative action. I mean, I go to Texas A&M. It has a historical reputation of being this white bread doctrinally conservative military academy it's more than 25 percent hispanic now mm -hmm. you know things have changed and they've changed and they've changed in such a way that affirmative action isn't needed anymore right as you said the soft bigotry of low expectations i've had plenty of conversations with my friends who who and god bless them uh, uh, i am a very common sense uh, blue collar i learned my lessons the hard way but i went to college i went to college for one reason not because i felt i needed a business degree which is what i got because i went into business but because society said i had to to get my foot in the door and certain certain things and and i never really have needed my degree but i always encourage people if you can't afford to go to college and you don't want to get a liberal arts degree but you want to learn about business go you'll learn great concepts there but you don't need it uh, however if you want to be a doctor a lawyer you know there there are they each have their purpose. I'm actually, a, like Mike Rowe, a big proponent of trade school. If I could go back 30 years and do it again, I would go to a trade school to become a, a computer graphics designer or something. I love that stuff. But I missed my window. I'm too old. Uh, you know. So, But one of the conversations I had with a friend of mine, I've had two of them, um, and, and I moved to the South, and, and my circle growing up in the South, this is what people don't want to understand either, is there, were, there, there was a, a Lumbee Indian. There was myself, a Latino, uh, two Asians, and one white guy, chubby white guy, you know, who lives in Texas now, by the way. You know, so it was extremely diverse. You know, and 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 and, and so some of my other friends that I met, they went on get great college degrees, great jobs, and I sat there and said. I don't want to say their names. I'm going to spit it out. I don't want to get them. What are you saying my name for, man? <laughs> but you know, I said, so so you were given your degree, you know, so 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 you didn't have to work hard. And he got mad. And I go, that's my point. You worked hard. So why are you now trying to refer to everybody else coming up as victims who need help? Your parents taught you the value of working hard. And you went and you got your degree. I go, you're the role model they need. They don't need to be listening to the stuff. You're a victim. You're this. You're owed this or whatnot. And, and, and the reason I say it like that is because affirmative action is kind of part of all this tribalism we're now seeing, which is destroying the country. And it breaks my heart because I come from a very mixed family, you know, and, 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 and it's a different story for a different day. But I have issues with that. I'm like, you want me to look at my family. You want them to look at me differently because of our skin tone. No, that's not how it works. And I tell them. You are the role model. You are what they need to look up to as to what works hard. And God bless one of my friends. We were having a discussion, and I told him this. I said, I'm so proud of you. And he goes, why? And he goes, I didn't get the job I applied for uh, at a defense agency. And I go, well, what do you think happened? And I thought for sure. He goes, well, it's because I'm black. He goes, well, I was the only one without a master's degree. And I go, so what are you going to do? I'm going to get my master's degree. 
got his master's degree, eventually got another promotion, had the move for the promotion, but is now living even larger. He's done well, owns a couple homes, working class guy. When I say homes, not mansions, but, you know, rents out homes that, that he's managed, you know, fixer-uppers pick up. So he's living the American dream. You know, and, and he, he's a middle aged black man and he doesn't understand when I try to tell him, you are the role model. He's got William, I don't have time for that type of stuff. I go, but that's why uh, I go, you are in a culture that is struggling. You can make a difference. So uh, my point is, is he looked at it as you and I look at it, but without even realizing that and yet still not understanding you're a difference maker for your culture. You are what your culture needs, not those journalists who worked hard themselves to get where they're at. All of a sudden telling others that they don't need to. You know, now you say uh, the elimination of race-based admissions preferences. Well, we talked about that. California and Texas had little or no effect on the decisions. Do you think that's because it's a different playing field, meaning they're not being given their affirmative action breaks uh, uh, that, 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 that many other states still do? And I, 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 I kind of say that. I don't mean it with malice, but, you know, affirmative action, whereas there is no affirmative action. So they've got to look at the, the playing field differently. Do you think, again – culture, the culture of that state and the system it's set up. Do you think it, that's why that they're succeeding? Because, hey, we're on equal terms with everybody else, so we have to produce, and they don't get into college unprepared? Well, I know I don't know quite as much about California, but I can definitely speak for Texas here. When Texas eliminated affirmative action, it replaced it with something called the top 10% rule. And under the top 10% rule, if you are in the top 10% of your high school graduating class at a public Texas school based on GPA, then you get automatic admission into any public university in the state with the exception of the University of Texas where it's just the top 6% because there's so much demand for it. But right, right. any other university, any other public university in the state, if you're in the top 10% of your high school graduating class, you have automatic admission into any one of those schools of your choosing. And, you know, there's been lots of studies about this, and most of them have been interested in whether or not it's able to replicate the diversity effects of affirmative action. Because at first, affirmative action genuinely did improve diversity in most colleges. Mm -hmm. And the answer seems to be no, but I don't think it has to. Because I think what something like the top 10% rule does, even if it is imperfect in some ways or has problems here or there, you know, there's no policy that's going to satisfy everyone 100% of the time, is that it gives everybody a fair shake. Because no matter what school you go to, no matter how poor your community is or what struggles you've had in life, if you work hard and are in the top 10% of your high school graduating class, and some of the other schools have uh, additional requirements or ways that you can get in automatically. Uh, that's what helped me get into A&M at the time because I was in the top 11% of my high school. Uh, <laughs> that 1%. <laughs> but, but it gives everybody a fair shake regardless of their background. It's, you know, it's a way of getting people from impoverished communities regardless of their ethnic or racial background. A fair shake at getting into a really good university, because Texas has a right. lot of good public universities. And I think that right, could right. be a model for other states that are still genuinely interested in giving these communities a helping hand or a tool that they can use um, without affirmative action. I, I wouldn't be surprised to see other states adopt something similar. Oh, I love it. It's based off merit. And and again, it rewards the families uh, with, with the strong values who want their kids to do better, who press their kids to do better. Uh, before I get to my final question, I, I wanted because I said that we get into it and, and it's important to me is I think a big flaw in this is not uh, of the affirmative action of getting these kids into the colleges. The flaw is the fact that they're attacking that when they should be attacking the public school systems from K through 12. Uh, the data out there shows that, that a lot of kids aren't, whether white, black, or whatnot, but really hits the black uh, 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 young kids and, and Hispanics is the quality of the education that we're seeing there and what's being taught. 
I think that's where the crux of the problem is at in preparing these kids. There will be higher numbers. Uh, colleges will be overflowing. More colleges will be built. Trade schools would really prosper because at the end of the day, you know, if everybody has a college degree, then all of a sudden, <laughs> you know, it's a, a, a not as important uh, piece of paper as it used to be. What's your take on the public education from K through 12 based off what I just said? For me, the biggest problem with public education in America right now, and I think that this is not something that gets talked about nearly enough. Um, it, you know, a lot of people will say, oh, there isn't enough money. Well, we actually put a lot of money into most of our schools. Oh, yes. The problem is that education as a field is very, very prone to embracing fads. Somebody at a university comes up with an, with an idea the idea sounds good, just on face value from a common sense perspective. So it eventually trickles down until it's in half the public schools in the country, but nobody has ever tested this idea to see whether or not it actually works. And, you know, it's in place for five or 10 years until the next cool idea comes around. And then suddenly it's being replaced with this also untested idea. And whenever many of these fads are actually put to the test, um, we generally don't find that they're harmful, but we also don't find that they're good. They just do nothing. So that right. we're treading water for such a long time, and then once a crisis hits, like COVID-19, for instance, then suddenly everything tanks. And right. until we're able to really be able to consciously evaluate what we are doing in public schools and be willing to change our methods if we find that something just isn't working, I think we're going to continue to see some of these problems. It's, you know, there's, you'll always hear stories of like a really awful teacher, or some crazy stuff being taught, and that's really important. But in the end, the problem lies with our whole philosophy of how we evaluate education in schools, because it's just, the fads are just too much. And I, I would list off several of them, but if I did, we'd be here all week. <laughs> Can you give us just a couple so the audience understands what you're talking about? Yeah, I, two that come to mind immediately. Um, one is what was called a growth mindset. There was a psychologist in the 70s and 80s named Carol Dweck who came up with two different kinds of mindsets. There's a fixed mindset in which you think, well, if I fail a test, it means I suck. And something called a growth mindset, where if you fail the test, you see it as a learning opportunity and a way to improve yourself and do better next time. Sounds cool on the surface, right? I mean, mm -hmm. it, it seems kind of intuitive. Well, it went into schools all over the country, and it wasn't tested for like 20 years. And when we finally tested it, we found it didn't do anything. Um <laughs> Another example would be what's called restorative justice. Restorative justice as a method of discipline is in, when a student does something bad. Let's say they bully another student. Instead of okay, sending that kid to out-of-school suspension or something. Uh, you, have, Gary, you, uh, you froze up there a little bit. Oh, where you did said I mean? restorative justice, and you said restorative justice is... There you go. Okay. <laughs> so... Restorative justice, um, let's say that one student is bullying another student. Mm -hmm. um, traditionally, the bully would be punished with, I don't know, detention or suspension mm -hmm. or something like that. It's a very retributionist model. Um, restorative justice, on the other hand, um, there are lots of different varieties, different ways in which it's implemented. But the basic idea is that you don't necessarily engage in retribution against the bully. You bring the bully and the kid who is being bullied together. <laughs> there are conversations. There's moral education. And, you know, it sounds really nice on the surface. And when it's tested in a laboratory environment in which, you know, there's no extenuating circumstances whatsoever, perfect conditions implemented perfectly, it does work. But the problem with reality is that nothing is ever implemented perfectly. And, and we're not perfect humans. And, that, and that's what it's based on. Humans. 
So naturally it's in a lot of schools around the country now. Mm -hmm. And in most of these places, it's not implemented as it would have been in a lab. And so it often makes things worse. Exactly. A bully now. And that's just two examples of some of these fads that can take over education and convince everybody of the fact that they're good and true and they work when in reality it's at best treading water and at worst making the problem more severe. Right, right. I kept wanting to jump in that because I want to cut you off. I, I, I got so excited about that topic because a bully will remain a bully until somebody puts the law down. And that doesn't mean you have to have, be physical against a bully, but you, there is no kumbaya, let's talk, or a little timeout. Uh, there was an episode of Bill Maher before he got on to uh, HBO. This is maybe, God, 15, 20 years ago now with Sinbad. And it was this, this, this it, was, it, it was an era of the current fad of the timeout. Go stand in the corner. And Sinbad was like, yeah, you take that to the ghetto. That's what he said. Take that to the ghetto. See how effective that is. You know? You know? There's a term my friend who's black used to say. White people be stupid. Not seriousness. Just like at the silliness at some of the thoughts. You know, because cultures are different. And uh, to add on to yours, uh, from my perspective, I was a teacher's aide. Uh, uh, I'm not a saint. I didn't volunteer. My job volunteered me. <laughs> You're going to be a teacher's aide. But it's an experience I'll never forget, and I'm forever grateful. And the two things I immediately noticed being a teacher's aide, I was a teacher's aide a couple times because I was bilingual. And uh, 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 one, the classes were overcrowded. Uh, I, I was a teacher's aide. For, it was third and fourth, maybe fourth or fifth grade. I can't quite remember. And uh, two, there were a lot of Latinos, a lot of Mexicans. It was California, uh, and, and, and it was in one of the barrio areas, and uh, they didn't speak very well English. So what I immediately realized, and the teacher explained to me, I can't go as fast as some of the other students because they don't speak. And then she goes, and I'm also battling other teachers who sit there saying, well, they don't really need to learn English. They're, they're Latinos. You know, we shouldn't force our language on them. And I'm like, are you a moron? Not the teacher. Because at the end of the day, if they want to get into college, you're going to need to learn English. Two, English is the number one business language in the world. I go, but... By your bigotry there, you're actually hurting this kid and all the other kids around them. So I see various flaws in there to go on top of yours, the fad. And the fad thing is so true. Like I said, the timeout, other fads, you know, it just does not work. Sometimes you need a combination of basics and tough love. It's kind of like we try to get too cute. Back in the 60s, there was this doctor, I, I assume a psychiatrist called Dr. Spock, who revolutionized how to raise a kid. Well, we see the results of that, you know? You can't beat your kid, but you have to have some tough love and some discipline in that household. And and, and, and that extends to whether it's, it's school. Uh, because at the end of the day, if you don't produce at your job, they will find a way to fire you. Because they need people who produce and work. And, and it's just a sad commentary on what the greatest country in the world has become. I've gone to over 30 some odd countries. I'm going to say 35, but too many to count. And, and it's the same story over and over in terms of the greatness and exceptionalism I've come to learn that is America. And we're losing that. And part of it is because of poor education. And, and actually, before I ask the last question, one more quick question. I believe schools are no longer teaching kids in public schools how to critically think. I think they indoctrinate more than teach them how to critically think. And I think by losing that ability to look at something and to start asking questions or trying to understand it, they're just trying to tell you why it is. What are you, what's your thoughts on my take and your take on critical thinking being a lost form of, of, of that's not being taught anymore? I don't think it's so much critical thinking as just rhetoric and argumentation because you see critical thinking as a buzzword thrown out, thrown around a lot, but nobody really talks about what it means anymore or what it would really look like. Like I was a debate kid in high school. That was my thing. And everything I learned for the most part about argumentation, about writing, about rhetoric, I learned from doing competitive debate. I mean, if I had just relied on the classroom, I mean, bless their hearts, I wouldn't have been as effective. And, right, right. you know, and in that case, you talked about just getting back to basics in some way. I think that's one area in which we very much need to get back to basics. How do you make an argument? What does a good argument contain? How do you evaluate evidence? 
how do you connect evidence to the rest of the world? Because just throwing data at people without any other context or background is right. going to accomplish right. anything. And, you know, in, in that sense, it really is a lost art. And to a certain extent, I mean, just open up Aristotle's rhetoric and you see a lot of it right there. And that's how things yeah. were for thousands of years. And it, it's another difference. one of those areas where it's there were fads, we've overcomplicated everything, and now nobody knows how to make an argument anymore. Right, right. I don't like the term argument because it's so uh, 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 people view argument that term in a way like well, an argument is just screaming at each other. More, I like your term of debate. There's, there's, there's no uh, good debating going on, and every and the world is not black and white. And social media, they they look at it in a black and white context, <laughs> and that's just the worst thing. My final question to you is is which is the heart of your article in a way, in, in terms of the results of what's happening is Hispanics are beginning to reject what some have called progressive paternal politics. And you talked on that, uh, but what is that, and why are we rejecting it? I guess it is is what I'd like to hear from you. Well. If your political system and your political prognostications rely on somebody feeling in, oppressed and inferior and that they need to look for you to guide, for guidance in order to escape those circumstances, you are living on borrowed time. Because eventually, especially when you have a group that isn't at all monolithic, like Hispanics, who have very, very different experiences, in very, very different places, they're eventually going to hear that and say, wow, that's utterly nonsensical. And exactly. once that happens, that political support that you've gotten used to is going to evaporate almost immediately. Because at its core, it's not based on values or principles. It's based on how can we mutually benefit from that situation. But once you aren't benefiting anymore, then what's the point of maintaining the alliance? And I think that's right. what's going to happen here. No, no, I, I, I agree. I, I agree. I, I think there are so, like you said, taking everything in context, there's so many variables. One way I try to tell people, too, that we're, we're different, I don't agree with the terms we've been given, Latinos, Hispanics, then there's Chicanos, and, and what else. But I tell people, I go, just look at that, those three terms. That signifies three different aspects of what a Latino, Hispanic, or Chicano is. I, I can't even sit there and use one term that encompass them all. Again, I would t I am technically a Latino and a Hispanic. Most of the Caribbean, Puerto Rico, Hispania, Hispanic, and but I was born and raised in Panama as a Latino, you know? So so I tell people these are terms that we try to look at in black and white, but there are terms that should actually be tossed out. What terms should be given? Cuban. Yeah, uh, uh, uh. And, and that's the thing with white people. They, they classify white people, but there's Irish, there's Italian, there's Polish. You know, uh, we need to go back to a culture, looking at us from a culture perspective and understanding we're Americans first. Because yep. I fear for this country, because I've seen 30 some odd countries. I've seen some bad things in this world. I've seen some good things in this world. I've been in a 200 mile trek into the jungles to bring aid to people. I've, I've seen fights break out, just our culture. There's a lot of ugliness and we are a beacon, a shining light. But if we remain uneducated as we have become, I, I, there's bad things because when you're uneducated, I truly believe you can be more easily manipulated. And that's what the political beings are doing. Those are my words not yours. Gary Garion, thank you for coming on. And for the audience, this will go live here shortly. You can find it. Uh, at, at right now, we're, we're undergoing a change. Our new company is Grumblings Media, but uh, we're old sports guys. So you can find it right now at sportsgrumblings.com. Uh, and from there, you can find the podcast, the YouTube channels. Uh, it's fired up. We also have Free For All and our points on the board. Our Free For All is our libertarian podcast. And our uh, points on the board is our sports podcast. Gary, thank you for coming on. And to everybody else, www. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Gary, your socials, before I forget, so people can follow you and get a hold of you. And we will have that at the bottom. My producer, uh, socials, socials. <laughs> I am most active on Twitter or X or whatever it's called now at yeah. F-R-A-N-K-E-L-G-A-R-I-O-N. There you go, my friends. And don't forget www.sportsgrumblings.com. And until next time, everybody have a wonderful life.